Welcome to the place where people of faith find real answers. We believe women deserve more than just religious band-aids for their most difficult and destructive relationships. And now for today's episode of Relationship Truth Unfiltered. Welcome to our podcast today, and we have a very special guest. A dear friend of mine from Pennsylvania, Marianne Modesti, is an attorney, a family law attorney, and she is amazing. She did a lot of work with women that I was working with as a counselor when I lived in Pennsylvania and worked as a clinician. And I want you to understand some of the legal complications that women encounter when they're dealing with the legalities of leaving or separating from a destructive husband. So without further ado, I want to tell you who Marianne is and all she's accomplished in her life before we get to talk with her personally. She's a member of the Bar of Pennsylvania, the Eastern District of Pennsylvania, as well as the Supreme Court of the United States. She's also currently the Vice President of the Board of Christian Legal Clinics in Philadelphia, and is also on the board of D.M. Stearns Foundation. She's also served on the board of many nonprofits, including the Center for Urban Theological Studies, local crisis pregnancy centers, daycare centers, and she was on the former advisory board of the uh, church at Calvary in Sauterton in their uh, Christian counseling program. She's also participated in leadership projects in East Africa, including Southern Sudan, working with South Sudanese judges and lawyers and American lawyers in legal conferences on biblical justice. I think that's so amazing. And also you've really moved into child advocacy in Philadelphia, as well as in Montgomery counties um, and started a child advocacy program in Montgomery County. And one of the things I love about Marianne is she's not just a worker in the office. She volunteers, she speaks, she provides programs to lawyers, to judges, to churches, to counselors on family law around this whole topic of abuse. She's a longstanding member of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, and she's a joyful mother and a grandmother of two. So welcome, Marianne, to the podcast. It's so good to see you again. Thank you, Leslie, so much. It's so great to be here, and I'd love to answer any of the questions that you might have and uh, discuss these issues. Yeah, Marianne, a while ago, uh, and I wrote a, a, a book together for our Conquer membership on Before You Say I Don't. And there was so much good information in that book for our members in Conquer that I wanted to kind of bring that same approach to our questions today about sometimes you feel like I need to separate, but I don't know what to do. I don't know what to put, you know, get first. But before we go into all those questions, what in the world made you want to be a lawyer, <laughs> especially a lawyer as a Christian woman? Who deals with divorce because I think that is going to interest some of our listeners because like you're a Christian you're a lawyer you're a woman why would you want to specialize in divorce tell us a little about that well um, I've been a lawyer for a very long time and almost 40 years now so I came up at a time when women were not lawyers and uh, they were in my law school class I think maybe 12 percent of our class were women and um, so when I started I uh, came into a field just very much controlled by men and had to deal with all of those uh, pieces. And I think the real reason why I started was uh, by prompting from my dad. And um, he would encourage me, and sometimes in kind of a backwards way, because I would argue with him and he would say, I'm going to send you to law school. So so that was effective. (laughs) Um, And I did make my way there. I was very thankful to be able to do that. I started out doing work, other kinds of litigation. I worked for a law firm that threw me into courtrooms early in my career, and I continued doing that kind of uh, all kinds of unusual litigation for a while. 
And um, I was a Christian and I, I was reading scripture and um, studying the minor prophets actually at that time, reading over and over again about helping the oppressed. So as I was looking at that study, I thought, I started crying, I thought, well, I can help the, the oppressed, I can help the widow, I can help the fatherless, so I know what that's about. And then I had an argument with God and argued with him pretty significantly for about two years. Um, and I thought, I don't want to do this. I'm going to do family law. Um, at that point, I'd been divorced myself. but had a very difficult uh, marriage at that time. Um, and I thought, I'm going to sit in my church and be a divorced woman and a divorced lawyer, and nobody's ever going to talk to me. <laughs> That's probably true. <laughs> but God is relentless when he calls you. And I'm thankful for that time that he gave to me, because when it's hard, when it's difficult, I look back at what he called me out to do. And I can remember that he gave me enough time to consider um, this. And this now was about 27 years ago. So I've been practicing family law for um, all that time, exclusive, pretty much exclusively. Um, so I'm thankful for that opportunity to do it. Mm -hmm. Calling is the big word. That verse in Malachi really troubles so many people, Marianne, because they hear it as God hates all divorce, but you've wrestled with that. I've wrestled with that. We know that's not what it says. Share how you came to peace with that. Actually, I went to seminary for a year before I went to law school. You know, I studied some Greek. I did not look at the Hebrew, but the language is really important uh, to me. And that verse is often misquoted as God hates divorce. That's not what it says. It says God hates the man who files for divorce wrongfully. It says, it says that's the concept. It is um, an improper filing for uh, divorce. And of course, at that time, men would uh, seek to divorce their wives for whatever reason, so that they could have a different wife, so that they could uh, have more money, so that there would be no claim uh, to property or because they didn't keep the house clean enough, whatever the issue uh, was for that man. And God said, no, that is, that is what he hates. It's, and it is, let me clarify that, it is not God who hates. It is the man who is hating his wife. That's who's doing the hating, not God. Um, so it, it is God who is calling that man to task in that scripture. Um, the other thing that's drawn from that then is a syllogism that goes like this. It goes uh, incorrectly stating the Malachi verse, God hates divorce, well, God hates sin, and then therefore, all divorced is sin. Often we hear, especially in the church, that divorce is almost the most heinous sin. It is, it is more heinous, often we hear, than abuse, which is not true. First, divorce is not always sin. Divorce is often caused by sin, but it is not always prompted by sin. Otherwise, Jesus himself would have left no room or divorce um, in his own sermons on that issue. And um, so therefore I think we need to look at that really carefully, analyze why if we are choosing to go forward with a divorce, whether that is right before God. And I do ask my clients who are Christians that question, is that, are you sure, I ask them that you are right before God. I certainly have had clients who have come in and said, well, I want this divorce because I want to continue with my affair. And they purport to be Christians and okay, you know, that's, 
fine, but even if the case is really interesting, I've had a few of them, I forward them to somebody else, <laughs> I send them to another good lawyer to um, represent them. But that's the first question. Then the second question, I do encourage people to talk to their pastor or a, a good counselor, Leslie, like you, or a solid counselor. Pastor sometimes though, and some churches are um, so antithetical to the concept of, to, of divorce that they do take that position that even in cases of physical abuse, and I've heard this from the mouths of pastors, even in cases of physical abuse, we all suffer, and this is your suffering woman, and so therefore you must stay in the marriage. I see nowhere in scripture, nowhere, in fact, quite the opposite that would support that kind of analysis. Yeah, me too, me too. So let's get practical, Marianne. So if a woman was coming to you and she was considering separations, maybe she's consulting with you as a first-time lawyer and she's considering separating, she's not sure what to do, what would be her first steps in order to start the whole process of putting her legal docs in a row? Because there are some things that if she has the opportunity to do them ahead of time, like gather paperwork or whatever, that would be important if she could do that. So what would be some of the things if someone were listening that they could begin to start doing if they saw that that might be an inevitable decision that they would have to make? Well, first I encourage that woman that um, she probably knows more legally than she thinks she does. Um, so uh, yes, talk to the lawyer, but I think that the first step is something that I know that you encourage and that I've heard uh, you many counselors encourage as well, which is, um, to make sure you have a nest egg set up. Don't, you would not want to leave a situation where you have nothing um, and go to less than nothing. So you need to work on those practical components first. Um, whatever it takes to set up that nest egg. Um, sometimes it, it entails getting a credit card. Sometimes it entails talking to the, your uh, deacons at your church and having some funds available or family members. And I think that that's an important piece to make sure um, that you put together um, so that you can leave. Don't expect that lawyers are going to be pro bono. There are, you stated, and, and I do work with agencies and do pro bono work, but obviously I also make a living. And while it would be wonderful if I could do that for free, you don't. And frankly, lawyers who know what they're doing in this area are expensive. And no matter where you are, no matter what the cost of living situation is in your area, it's not going to be inexpensive. So be prepared for that. You should talk to a lawyer earlier on rather than later so that you can find, even if you just have that initial conversation, and we do this you know, with some frequency, just to find out what your parameters are, what your rights are. Make sure that you have support, that you're not isolated, whether that is your counselor, mentor, friend, uh, friends from church, your family, and don't isolate yourself because that's part of the abuse, right? The, the part of the abuse is that he will try to isolate you. And knowledge is power in some ways. And so, so many women have been told, for example, well, if you leave me, you'll get, you'll get nothing. I'm going to leave you penniless. Or if you leave me, I'm going to take the children. And that is so terrifying of a concept that they don't leave. Instead of saying, I need to find out if that's true. Does he have that right? Does he have that power? Will I get nothing? If I leave, will I get less? And if I stay and just file for divorce? And those are questions that 
only your attorney in your particular state can answer because every state is different about those things. Every state is, it is different, although it's specifically what I do see, and I would share that, you know, as I said to you, it, I started in other litigation, doing litigation, and frankly, in other law, you read a case, you read the law, and that's what it is. And then you know what to do with the facts that are in front of you. In family law, it's harder. There's a sense of equity that goes through, and there's a sense of fairness, but there's also an arbitrary application to it because people wrote that law and people are trying to legislate families and that is almost impossible to do. Therefore, what you see in abusive situations, I'm gonna say almost 100% of the time is the abuser coming in and saying to you things exactly like that. I'm gonna get the kids, my name's on that deed, you don't get anything in the house. Uh, or anything about the house. My name's on the pension. You're going to walk, you know, walk away with nothing. What are you thinking? And the truth is that all of these lies that are concocted by the abuser are intended only to gain control, whatever the motivation is of that abuser. And the spouse is intimidated, but it is almost always a lie. I had that conversation uh, actually twice today already, that this is what you're hearing from the other side. It's just not true. And not that, not that I'm going to go in and say, okay, I'm going to get you everything. That would be ridiculous. And if you have a lawyer who says that, um, that's not true either. But this concept of you're going to walk away with nothing is a lie. You're going to walk away without the children. It's a lie. I will say, since you're talking about going maybe down a bunny trail a little bit, because I know you raised the custody issue. You, one of the issues that is fair to consider, for instance, is um, recognizing that unless there is horrendous violence and abuse, and depending on the jurisdiction, you are not going to have 100% custody. You're not going to have sole and exclusive custody, but you will, depending on how you handle it, have opportunity to teach your children how to um, look at that person who has abused you and you will give them opportunities to give them tools to deal with that abuser, even in that separation. And you are saying to them, uh, depending again on the circumstances, you're saying to them, abuse is not okay. And abuse can hurt a family, can destroy a family. And that's so hard for some moms to, to feel like the judge would care about a parent's right, a father's right when he's been harsh or over-disciplining or that they feel he's been inappropriate. There's no hard facts or it's not gross where, you know, children and youth are involved, all those kind of things. And so it's so hard for a mom to feel safe with her kids at that house when she doesn't have any supervision over what's going on, especially if they're younger. Yeah, it, it, it is. Uh, difficult, but there are ways to work around that. And one of the things, of course, that I would encourage, and I encourage my clients to make sure that they themselves are in counseling so that they can really begin to see truth on their own. And lots of times, truth is that that spouse is targeting you and less so the children. One of the things that I encourage uh, my clients to do is to uh, figure out, and this is a hard question. This is a hard question in every single custody case. But I ask my clients to identify one, so I start with three, and I allow myself to go down to one 
characteristic in that other parent that is positive. Because these children otherwise will begin questioning themselves. And say, wait, my dad is a criminal. My dad assaults my mom. My dad hurts people and, and I'm half my dad, that whole psychological component. Um, and so am I like that? And so instead, you, you mom have opportunity to give your kids the gift of the positive things in the dad, um, not hiding, you're, you're still gonna be truthful. You're not gonna just emphasize one thing. The words I'd like to use are um, that you are going to be firm about these things that dad is wrong about and confirm to the kids that dad's wrong about those things. But also be loved and give them room to love their dad because they do. Um, and don't take that away from them. We see that happen often. Yeah, we see parental alienation a lot. And, and unfortunately, at least our experience, the courts are usually a little bit more educated about a woman alienating a husband from his children versus a husband alienating the wife from the mother from their children. And so we've in our group, we've had a couple instances where women have lost custody, total custody of their children, not because they did anything bad, but because they were accused of alienating. And so it's it's very, a very tight rope that a woman walks when she's very angry with her husband uh, over the things he's done as a husband. And maybe he's been using the children to get at her a little bit too. And so it's, it's really Absolutely. a tough thing. Mm -hmm. it's, it's very difficult. And that whole concept of parental alienation has developed in significant ways in the courts. Um, so we only see it in psychology as well. In the 90s, this whole concept of parental alienation syndrome, um, that's not given a clout anymore, but the whole concept uh, concept of alienating the children is certainly a factor to be considered in any custody issue. Um, and a port, remember the courts look, have seen abuse from all kinds of angles too. And I say to clients, you know, the walls of courtroom speak. And so while the abuse that you feel and you deal with is yours and exquisite to you and deep to you, the court looks at it with a way, well, this didn't happen to this woman and this didn't happen to these children. And so I need to group this in my head into a different category that doesn't take away from your pain, but the court may look at it that way. That's also why we were talking about some other issues. You may want to consider ways to reach agreements rather than litigate, because once you begin that litigation, it is um, no holds barred and somebody else is making the decision for your family. Yeah, one of the things I loved about your approach, Marianne, and I think that this is really important for our listeners. We want our lawyer to fight for us. We want her or him to be on our side and get what we want and make it fair and make sure the judge understands everything that's wrong about our husband and all those kind of things. And one of the things I really loved about your approach is that you were really anchoring women back to both the law and the facts and what was reality and what wasn't reality. Like you're not going to get hundred percent custody of your kid. And I, right. you can, you can spend a hundred thousand dollars fighting for it, but you're right. not going to get, you're not going to get hundred percent. So you wouldn't waste their money fighting for something that you already knew wasn't going to happen. And I think 
that's so important for um, you to look for a lawyer, for our listeners to look for a lawyer that is honest enough with you to tell you what is legally viable and what is legally not viable, even though we feel it's so unfair or it's so unjust or it's so hard for our children to have to go with their dad. Um, that may be what the judge decides. And no matter how much fighting we do, it's not going to change. That's, re that's really true. And I, um, and thank you for raising that kind of an issue because there are lawyers out there who will be glad to fight just for the sake of it. And lots of times, and I also encourage um, women who are abused to be aware of this, that lots of times they're drawn to that kind of person. There's a radar because that person may be abusive too. That lawyer may be abusive and demanding uh, uh, as well, which is not gonna help you to get to the other side of what is staring you um, in the face uh, right now. Judges will say, why are you having me make this decision? You need to be able to make that better for your family, even though you feel overwhelmed. It is almost impossible when you think about it to have a, a, a state legislature legislate your family. They can't. The nuances of your family and the sense of justice that you are seeking for your family are in God's hands. People can't figure it out. God himself says that uh, in Romans 3. He says, you know, the purpose of the law is to show us what sin is. It doesn't fix it. Um, so if you are going to go to court and get a court order, if the other side is not going to follow it, um, it's not going to be very helpful uh, to you from that perspective. So if you be careful of that, better that's why the agreement, uh, as opposed to the imposition uh, of an order from that way. But there is a, there still is a sense of justice. And one of the things that I love about frankly, about being a Christian, especially in this area of dealing with abuse. There are a lot of secular agencies out there that work with um, abused, abused victims, children and women, and men are abused too. I mean, we certainly have represented a number of men who um, are covered with women scratching them on their eyes and faces and everything else. But the answer that those secular agencies provide is get angry be angry, stay angry, and you have a right to justice, and this justice is, is, is frail, but you have a right to pursue, uh, to pursue that kind of justice. As Christians, we are beyond that. We offer, the Bible offers, God offers hope, and beyond being angry, which is part of working through why the abuse, that's an important component of it. It doesn't end that. You don't live your life angry. You can work beyond that and see what God's plan of redemption is. And I love that because we are angry and we have a reason to be angry. We've been harmed. Our kids have been harmed. We've been um, treated wrongly. We've been misunderstood or unloved. And, and so there's, there is that hurt and that re angry, the reaction to hurt is anger or depression. One or the other anger is probably better because it gives you a little bit more energy to fight. Um, but I think that you do want to get through that. You don't want to feel so justified in your anger that it becomes who you are. You just want it to be what you feel and you are going to feel it, but it's not who you are. And I love how you say that, Marianne, that we're more than that. We're Christians and we can overcome wrong done to us 
by good, which, you know, Paul says, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And what does that good look like? It might be, it's good to file for divorce. It's good to heal from the injustice and the hurt and the harm that's been done to you. It's good to forgive. It's good to have consequences. It's good to have boundaries, all those kind of things, but it's good to love your enemy. And what does that mean? It means let go of the hate so that you don't get poisoned by all that injustice for a long term. It might be temporary, but you, you want to move that toxic stuff through your system so that you don't get stuck in that place. And you talked about litigation versus trying to work together to resolve this. But understand that if you're getting divorced, you know this, most of the time you can't work together, you wouldn't be getting divorced. So it's so hard because having a conversation with a narcissist who's always going to be right and always has to win, it's very difficult to have a mediation or a an agreement that feels fair. So let's talk about like litigation in court versus mediation outside of court? Or is there a middle ground where you have your lawyer there and you work together to try to settle with his lawyer without the court deciding, but you still have some representation and someone who's fighting for you and not just the mediator who's pretty neutral? Lawyers call that whole field is alternative dispute resolution. And many family lawyers, including me, have education and dealing with various means of alternative dispute resolution. In that way, you would look at some mediation itself, which is usually a mediator who is a lawyer or counselor who has been trained and is adept at uh, working with the clients directly. And I agree, mediation, because the lawyers are not present during the negotiation itself, is not appropriate where there's abuse. In fact, in Pennsylvania, while custody mediation is required to a certain extent, it is not permitted where a protection from abuse uh, or restraining order is in place. It's not permitted then because it, because the mediator is incapable then of uh, equalizing the power that is necessary in order to conduct the negotiation. There are other devices like collaboration where lawyers are present but the effort there is to have a kind of a conference, kind of a group meeting, and everybody helps everybody to come to certain conclusions. In that setting, it's odd because uh, it's odd for me as a lawyer, um, you know, training collaboration, I've done a little bit of it, but strange because you do not only advocate for your client, you may advocate for the other side too in order to come up with, with the best plan for the family. It's a, kind of an odd uh, situation. And again, I don't think collaboration works where there is abuse. Collaboration, by the way, is, is an outside process, outside of the legal process. You can have arbitration also, and you hear of that word. Usually arbitration looks like a judge, an arbitrator, who is given the power of a judge and who makes uh, a binding decisions for the families. Usually arbitration is binding. The advantage of arbitration is that it's faster than uh, litigation, but it looks like kind of a mini courtroom situation. Um, in Pennsylvania, we also in other states have this too, something called parent coordination, where lawyers who are uh, in this role have certain ability to make recommendations to a court in regard to a custody order, but there's limitations on that. It keeps the parties out of court. Parent coordination is appropriate for abuse situations because you have somebody who's pounding a fist, who's, who's uh, hammering a gavel and working with the parties to come up with a conclusion. 
that what you were talking about earlier also, uh, in the beginning of your question was talking about kind of this informal way that lawyers resolve cases. And we do that in a lot of different ways. Perhaps lawyers meet together. Perhaps off the parties and the lawyers meet together. Or you negotiate on the phone. Or you negotiate by uh, proposing agreements and uh, negotiating those. That last version keeps the parties from necessarily communicating with one another directly. But the lawyers do the communication and, and protect the clients, their respective clients in that way. I would say that even in cases of abuse, even where that is going on, 80, 80%, 85% of cases are resolved without litigation or without much litigation. Trials are extremely expensive and you can expect whatever your legal fees are to double or triple if you have to go. So think of it like that. If you are paying $10,000, if you have to go to a custody trial, it'll be $30,000 or $40,000. And some cases, even more. And when you tell that to a client, you know, by the time we're through with this, it's going to be $100,000. Cases can settle a lot faster. Yeah, I think part of the problem is when he has the $100,000 and she doesn't. And so he's got this money to drag her back and forth into court and all of that. And she's running out of money to pay her lawyer. And so it feels so unjust and unfair that he keeps bringing her back. I've had several clients legally represent themselves. They just didn't have the funds to come back into court all the time. That's where um, you, you do want to look at the pro bono uh, avenues available to you. And we do some pro bono representation, obviously. So in-house, I'm more selective of that pro bono representation, but we do it through clinics um, and we represent, we do child advocacy as well, which probably comprise about 20% of the work that we do. I, I guess one of the questions that has come up is if, if I go to Legal aid, legal aid, for instance, in my county will do custody representation. So my, in that case, I was thinking of a client, but frankly, in my county, they will do custody representation. And you think, well, what am I going to get for that? Am I getting a free lawyer or am I going to get a non-lawyer or somebody doesn't know what they're doing? My experience in dealing with some of the legal aid lawyers and sometimes on the other side is that a lot of them are, are pretty good. So don't think that those things are not available to you. Sometimes I get comments from our girls in our support group that, you know, they aren't getting the information they need from their lawyer. They're calling. She's not returning their call. She's frustrated. She's like, I don't know what's going on. Um, I don't hear any updates. I don't know what's happening. I don't know what to do. Should I fire my lawyer? Should I talk to my lawyer? What if I talk to him and she gets mad and fires me? What's a realistic expectation when someone hires you? how much you're going to kind of stay in touch with her. And when she calls, is it realistic to expect a call back or, or not? So ethically, um, and there's a code of ethics that lawyers must follow specifically or they risk losing or having their licenses suspended. So that's, it's a hardcore and lawyers take it very seriously. And one of those rules of ethics is to keep your client apprised of what is going on. Now, because we use emails and sometimes texts and uh, other ways to apprise clients, I, we send everything to our clients, everything in writing. If I am emailing another lawyer, I uh, send that email to the client. So with you know, technology makes it a heck of a lot easier to keep your client informed. And so far as phone calls, that's a hard one. 
It's my policy to return phone calls within 24 hours of a call being received, irrespective of who it is, or even if the client is a pain in the neck. <laughs> Sometimes you have that too, right? The client is difficult and I am tired, but I'm going to call that client within 24 hours. Because one thing that I've learned is, um, having uh, been in this practice for so long, clients come in and tell you something really weird and unusual and bizarre. And you think that can't possibly be. And I will tell you that seven out of 10 times it's true. And so you know, we take those things seriously. On the other hand, I will say that there are clients. So there's a news station here in Philadelphia called KYW. And uh, the letters are KYW. And for a while, a long time, their ad was listen to KYW two, three, four times a day, and you will know everything that you need to know in regard to the news. So I have had clients that I call KYW callers. Um, so they call two, three, four times a day, or they send 20 emails. And I'm not exaggerating, you know, with those kinds of numbers. Well, you're not going to, and that's not just because there's a settlement that's hot and you're dealing with it, but they just want to be uh, comforted or whatever the issues. I mean, that call two or three, four times a day um, and returning those kinds of calls. So make sure you're not doing that or emailing the lawyer over and over saying, what's the status, what's the status, what's the status, because there's time in between each um, issue. To you, it feels like it's forever. It does feel like it's forever. And I want to know the answer to that now. I will confess that many years ago when I was going through a divorce, my boss was my lawyer and we had a paralegal and I would harass the paralegal. I did harass that paralegal, but stays now, what are you doing now? And because <laughs> you want it done. And that's how it feels. Everybody feels like that about every kind of lawsuit all the time. So you're not alone. And we know that. I want my clients to feel like they're my only client. But in my office, we generally have about 60 cases at a time. So I want all of those people to feel like that, but I'm sure they don't. I'm sure that there are times they would wish Mary and would be putting my case on the top. Well, we do. We put them, we put them there in the way that we know is going to be um, reasonable. If you call your lawyer and a week goes by and you've not heard from your lawyer, you call your lawyer twice and, and you still have not heard from that lawyer, that's a problem. Either that lawyer has too much work or not enough work or they're not paying enough attention to the work that they're doing. You certainly have a right to know what's going on in your case. If there's an ethical obligation with some lawyer to keep you informed as to what's going on in your case. So let's say for just an example, they're not that kind of person. They're not, you know, they're not calling every day, not even every week, but that they haven't gotten a response in a couple of weeks or even a couple of months. They have no idea what's going on. They've emailed, they've asked, they've called. What are their rights or what should they do next? They may have even tried to have a conversation with their lawyer through email, like what's going on? I haven't heard from you and still nothing. What would be their next right step? So it's absolutely, you can look for another lawyer. We don't lose too many clients, but occasionally we do. And if I have a client coming to me, which is thankfully more the case um, from another lawyer, 
I ask the client to make sure the bill is paid with it over. I think that that's, you know, that is the contract part and that is the right thing to do. It's a moral issue. Beyond that, you don't have obligation to your lawyer, your lawyer's obligation to you. The file that has been created thus far is yours. That's one of the reasons why we send everything to our clients as it is going on. So they have, they should have no question as to what their file looks like. They have it. You don't have to discuss with that attorney why you're leaving. If I'm taking in a case from another lawyer, I offer to that client that, you know, I'll communicate with the other lawyer and um, make sure that we get the file from the other lawyer. Don't switch that much. It's really expensive because that new lawyer is going to charge you to catch up. One of the things I loved about you, Marianne, when we worked, you know, with cases together is that you are so practical and you're so honest with what you can do and what you can't do. And so I think, you know, for those of you who are listening and you're hiring a lawyer, they're there to give you legal advice. They're not there to be your support system. They're not there to be your psychologist. They're not there to be your friend. They're not there. And and if you're wanting that from them, it's going to be very, 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 very expensive. And so sometimes it's, it's managing your own expectations of, and even asking the right questions. How soon can I expect to hear from you? What is your policy on returning phone calls when you're doing that initial vetting of the right attorney to kind of see if your expectations and their style match? And part of healing from abuse is learning to make your own choices. And sometimes you think this is a good decision. Like, I just want to get out. If I can get out with, you know, $10,000 to put it on a down payment on a townhouse and he walks away with, you know, a million dollars of assets. Um, I'm good as long as he doesn't bother me anymore. And, you know, all that kind of thing. And, and you have to decide your stress levels and you have to decide what you can live with and what you can't live with. But I think your lawyer is there to try to help you get what's legally yours. And at least within some good parameters of that. But the idea is to equip this person. And this is the part I love about the work to equip this person to move forward, to think clearly, and to you know, come out of um, the dire situation that they were in. Right. So that they're not being bullied anymore. Anything else you'd like to share with us, Miriam, before we go? I thank you so much for your time and all your wisdom. Well, and thank you, Leslie, for the opportunity. And of course, I could talk to you all afternoon. I really do appreciate being able to share a little bit with um, the women who are going through so much. God knows. He has surrounded you with more people than you realize who can help you through it. Well, thank you. How many, how might somebody contact you if they were in the Pennsylvania area and the Philadelphia area and are listening? We have a lot of listeners from the East Coast because of living there and working there for so long. And how might they find you? So I do have a website and my last name is spelled M-O-D-E-S-T-I and you can look up Marianne Modesti and uh, the website is there. That's the easiest way uh, to reach me and uh, my staff. There's a email address on the website to use and I respond to that pretty quickly. Thank you so much. It's been so good to see you again. Thank you. Oh, I'm going to say one other thing about that. Leslie, if you don't mind, let me how that you heard of me through Leslie Vernick <laughs> and I will respond to it even faster. <laughs> ah, good. Thank you so much for that. My clients will love that. And maybe someday they'll be your clients as well. Take care. Uh, thank you so much, Leslie. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Relationship Truth Unfiltered. If you haven't subscribed yet, be sure to hit that follow button. And we would appreciate if you would leave your honest rating and review of this podcast. Well, until next time. May God bless your mind, your heart, and your home.